and welcome back to Franklin Covey's weekly leadership podcast called On Leadership with Scott Miller, the world's largest weekly podcast dedicated to the topic of leadership. I'm your host, Scott Miller, and I'm privileged to serve as the interviewer each week. You know, occasionally I'll have someone ask me, so Scott, it's a leadership podcast. Why are you interviewing a Hollywood celebrity or a best-selling author about their childhood trauma or a general or a Pulitzer Prize-winning historian? And I say, well, the fact of the matter is, after having dedicated three decades of my, only, my own career to leadership, having been a leader with some success and some failures, all of it comes back to how I was parented, how I did or did not have a healthy relationship with my father or my mother or perhaps my only sibling, my brother, and the incalculable impact that our parents, our caregivers, our guardians have on us needs to be greatly integrated into how we build our careers, how we move on to become parents to others. And today, I am honored that the seminal author of the series on parenting is joining us from all places, Traverse City, Michigan, Dr. Meg Meeker is joining us today. She's the author of numerous books, Strong Fathers, Strong Daughters, Strong Mothers, Strong Sons, many others, and my favorite, Boys Should Be Boys, Seven, seven Secrets to Raising Healthy Sons with Three Boys on the Cover. You may know I am the somewhat reluctant and conscripted father with my wife, Stephanie, of three young boys that are 8, 10, and 12. So today might be a little bit of a therapy session for Scott Miller. Regardless, Dr. Meeker, welcome to On Leadership. Thank you for having me. It's such an honor. I have to share a story with you. Uh, about a decade ago, uh, I was married, married 13 years ago for the first and only time. My, my wife, Stephanie, and I decided to have children, which meant she wanted to have children. And so if I wanted to get married, I needed to agree. And so we very fortunately were blessed with three healthy young boys that are now 8, 10, and 12. And about eight years ago, I saw this book in Barnes & Noble. Great cover, by the way. Boys Should Be Boys, Seven Secrets to Raising Healthy Sons. And um, we've had four homes in four years. We buy and sell homes, and that's been a good thing in some ways and a bad thing in others. But your book has followed me on my nightstand across four homes. I love this book, Boys Should Be Boys, Seven Secrets to Raising Healthy Sons. Well, about six years ago, our now CEO was at lunch with me one day and was raving about this book that he loved called Strong Fathers, Strong Daughters. His name is Paul Walker, and he's our CEO. And he and his wife, Melissa, are blessed with one son and three daughters. And as much as the book didn't appeal to me, I have sons and not daughters, he was like your evangelist across Utah. Well, it wasn't until a few months ago I realized, oh, wait, it's the same person. It's the pediatrician, Dr. Meg Meeker, that wrote both of our favorite books on parenting. And you aren't our first guest to talk about parenting, but perhaps you're going to be the most seminal. Would you take a few minutes and talk about your own journey as a pediatrician? You're a well-known author, media celebrity on, on YouTube and on NBC and Today's Show. Talk a bit about your journey and why you've become so passionate to really help people transform their parenting skills. Sure. Well, you know, as a pediatrician, I've seen thousands of kids over the years. I've been at this for 33 or 34 years. But when our own kids were growing up, we have three daughters and one son. <clears throat> the older they got, the greater the disconnect I saw between um, what they needed and what they were getting in the culture, and particularly the sexualization of girls. When our kids were in junior high and high school, that was really starting to bother me a lot. So I began speaking out about it. And um, 
And literally, I, I never intended to write a book, but somebody from a publishing house happened to be in an audience and an audience that I was speaking at. And they said, wow, this is really great stuff. I've never heard of it before. Would you be interested in writing in the book? And I said, I guess I've never done it. And so I really, I wrote Strong Fathers, Strong Daughters because <clears throat> I am, I don't like the way dads are being bashed uh, in our culture. You know, they're sort of the doofus, the Adam Sandler. But what I see in my practice is girls really, really want their dads and they really want a connection. So I really wrote that book through the eyes of a daughter so that dads could understand what their daughters want. And then when I saw the bashing of dads, I thought, wait a minute, what's this doing to our boys? Because we had a son. That's what prompted boys should be boys. Dr. Meeker, you've written how many books in total? Seven. Seven books. Uh, I have a couple of them here today that I'm gonna speak about. I'm gonna have a little bit of a prejudiced view against boys, toward boys, because I was a boy and I'm the father of three boys. In, in one of your books you write, I believe that the troubles hurting our boys stems from three major sources. Lack of close relationships with men, particularly their fathers, lack of religious education, and an aggressive mm -hmm. exposure to a toxic media that teaches mm -hmm. boys that the keys to having a great life are sex, sex, a bit more sex, and a whole lot of money and fame. Now, I've read this book over the course of eight years in four homes, and last night I was laying in bed around 8.30. I was reviewing your book one more time, and I'm in bed with my wife next to me. She's reading a book. I'm reading your book. And our three sons are downstairs after a long day of basketball practice and school and homework. And they're watching a YouTube series. Some guy that does tricks, you know, tricks on skateboards and does pranks and all that, and big homes and Maseratis and all that kind of stuff. And I thought, oh my gosh, she's talking about my three boys downstairs watching a YouTube channel about playing <laughs> pranks. And, you know, it's generally pretty clean, but... I'm sure it hypersexualizes them and talks about money and fame and girls and cars. And I said, I screamed out to them, off, <laughs> which means TV is off. And I made them come upstairs because you were haunting me. Talk about what it's like to be raising boys and girls in 2022. And what are some practical tips of things that we think are okay, but probably are slippery slopes? As we talk about boys, I think the, the biggest issue is video games. Now, a lot of boys play video games perfectly fine, and that's okay. But you have to be very careful about what video games they want because they're laced with sex. Not even laced. I mean, sex is right in there. You see sexy girls, very violent. Um, and it really desensitizes boys. And this disturbs me because boys are sensitive people. And our culture really is sort of teaching them, no, you're not, and you can handle this. And, you know, the video games are fine. And again, I said, it, video games are fine as long as they're ones that aren't violent. Because we do have a, a lot of good research coming out and saying, you know, how bad violent video games are for boys. And so, you know, I think that in raising boys, um, it's really important to focus on what's important to them and what's gonna make them happy in life are strong relationships. And those start with relationships with their parents, um, you know, particularly their dads. And so the more time kids spend away from dad, they can be in the same home as you, but be away from you, you know, on games or their cell phone or computers or whatever, um, the less influence they're having from you. 
And boys need touchdown time with their dads just to interact and communicate and develop that kind of intimacy, if you will. Dr. Miku, you also write in the book, Boys Should Be Boys, you say time, attention, affection, and approval. They are what every boy needs in abundance from his parents. I can guarantee that if the majority of parent-son interactions are focused around these four things, time, attention, affection, and approval, then correction and discipline will work when they are required. This is tough, right? Because with three young sons, my youngest loves Pokemon, my middle son loves basketball, my older son likes to read, he likes to YouTube, he's into shoes. I am not interested in Pokemon. I hate basketball, I like tennis. I do like to read, but he likes his friends. And so I have to find myself making sure that I'm not spending my time doing the things that I like to do. I like to go to dinner and lunch in restaurants. Boys, come with me. I like to go to Barnes & Noble. I like to play tennis. And I think I find myself spending the time with my sons doing things that I like to do to fit them into my very frenzied schedule as an entrepreneur and podcaster and author and speaker. Remind all of us how easy it is for us to spend time with our kids that's actually not quality time. You know, I'm so glad that you pointed that out. I've never had an interviewer say it that way, that what dads try to do often is fold kids into their schedules, what they want to do. My husband's a cross-country ski racer. Guess what? All of our daughters cross-country ski raced and growing up. <clears throat> but I think it's important for dads to sort of pay attention to what their kids are doing and just just do it with them for a little bit. And, and also, you don't need hours at a time with your kids. You really don't. Even if you spend a half hour here, you know, hey, I noticed you like that video game. Let me sit down and play with, you know, play it with you. If it's a good game, of course. Or gee whiz, I know um, you're kicking a soccer ball outside. Let me come out. Just 15 minutes here and 15 minutes there. But if you enter your son's world, it means a lot more to him than if you prompt him to enter your world. Because he'll start to believe in order to get, get dad's attention, I need to start doing what he's doing. And that can set up a bad precedent because he feels the only way he's going to get anything from you is to do what you want, not necessarily what he wants. So well said. Uh, two weeks ago, I was invited to my oldest son's school for an evening 90-minute session on drug awareness. They had a uh, representative of the Hazleton Betty Ford Center come and talk about the statistics of drug use and all of that. And my family is very anti-drug. We are very, very careful with even prescription drugs. We're not casual drug users at all. And uh, I went in eyes wide open, very aware of the challenges that face all of our children. And the one thing that this representative of the Betty Ford Center talked about was the connection between self-esteem and drug experimentation and drug use and how most kids are getting involved in drugs less because of peer pressure and more because of the desperation to look cool and feel included. They're desperate to be seen and heard and when their parents don't provide that for them, they find it with their peers and that the most important relationship and every child's life is that with their parents. Can you revisit the importance of that to the degree you, just, you agree, which I'm guessing you do, and how we as parents can invest and build in our child's self-esteem so they don't feel the need to seek the approval of their peers and do things that they're doing that are killing mm -hmm. thousands of children by now, you know, 
um, laced pills. And I hear that um, uh, uh, marijuana laced with, um, what's the new drug? The, um, the, the fentanyl, right? That marijuana laced fentanyl is killing children by the, uh, however many. Take that wherever you'd like to go. Sure. I think what we're doing is we're attending to the superficial aspects of our kids' lives and kids know it and it doesn't work. For instance, go out there and be a really good soccer player or be really good at football or, you know, be a really good swimmer, whatever. And that's okay. But if you do that in place of spending your time with your kids eyeball to eyeball, touching them, talking to them, listening to them, um, then, then it doesn't work. And that's when kids look to seek approval from their friends, because that's what matters to their friends, stuff they do, how they look, how cool they are. And the, the less time they get connecting with a parent, the more they're tempted to do that. Now, you think connecting with a parent sounds oh, you know, that kind of intimidating or a little bit overwhelming. It really isn't. It comes back to that. Are you giving your kids um, your time and attention that are separate from the things they do, you know, and, and, and separate out, um, you know, your acceptance of your kid because he's doing something really well. But that's how we talk about in our culture. Parents do that, you know, what's your kid playing? Where's he gonna go to college? What are his grades? And we boast about our kids, but kids know it's empty and they don't want to be accepted for those things. They wanna be accepted. Your sons want to be accepted by you because they're your sons. And if you can communicate that to them, that they are lovable, you want to be with them, you enjoy their company, maybe not all the time because they can be kind of pills, all kids can, but to let them know that you like them, you want to be with them, that you love them, that they're good enough in your eyes, that's the most important thing you can give a child that's going to um, help them resist taking those drugs. Kids take drugs because they, they need to impress their friends, but they also need to mood alter because they're lonely and they're not connecting with people. And we've seen that since COVID as well. Parents are the ones that teach their kids that they're valuable, they're lovable no matter what, and that they will never leave them. And if you give those that to your kids, you really don't have to worry about a lot of the rest of, of the stuff. Dr. McGear, let's talk about outsourcing. Let's assume that the millions of people that are watching this podcast that are trying to be better leaders and parents, and, and they're, they're like me, right? They're decently well-educated. They have a conscience. They work hard. They pay their taxes. They're saving money for the future. They love their children. They need time alone. They're you know, losing their lives because they have so much time in their children. Just they're normal people. When right? they say losing their lives, meaning you know, they're living vicariously through their kids sometimes, what are, the, what are the things that well-intended parents like me tend to outsource? We outsource them to school, but we should mm -hmm. not be. We should be insourcing them. Remind us of the two or three most important things that parents should be doing on a daily basis, and we should not be subconsciously or consciously outsourcing them to anyone else. Well, I think the reason we outsource our kids is because all of our friends are doing it. Honestly and truly, people worry about kid peer pressure. Parent peer pressure is a lot 
um, more intense. In other words, you want your kids to keep up with your best friend's kids. So if their best friend, if your best friend's kid is in two sports after school, um, and your kid isn't in any, you feel like you're not a very good parent. So you push your kid to do that, i.e. outsource your kid. Every time you um, allow your kid to get on the field with a coach or on an ice skating rink or whatever, you're surrendering your time with your kid. Now think about this, a child's self-esteem and identity um, comes from reacting with their parent. In other words, if you're son is doing something and you react to him like wow that's a really good thing he feels like he's a really good kid he's smart you don't feel that way with a coach so parents and time with parents and again i'm not talking about hours at a time parents are the ones who shape the identity of a child not a coach not a teacher and so the identity of your child's formation suffers to some degree when you outsource your kids. And it's a very simple concept, but your kids need more time with you, less time with their soccer, whatever, because the truth is 90% of these kids who are, you know, star soccer players in high school are not going to be professional soccer players. As a matter of fact, they may go on to a really good college and never play soccer again. So you have to say, why am I doing this? Because I'm robbing my kid when I outsource them of time with me, which is going to develop a strong sense of self. Beautifully said. Let's take it a step further. I want you to get really practical in the house. What do the best parents do? Do they have family meetings? Do they eat together two nights a week? Do they have you know, open conversations? I mean, from the, the thousands of parents you've met with as a pediatrician and the millions that have watched you and read your books, can you get really practical? Recognize that not everyone has the same situation. Sometimes there are single parent households and there are new spouses and step parents and some people might be not raised by parents but by relatives. Mm-hmm. Taking all that into account, are there a couple of things that you could say to those that are listening, if you do like practically this and this and this, and here's what it looks like, your odds of raising kids with a strong identity and strong self-esteem are gonna be exponential. Yeah, sure. One of the very easy things is they have to have chores and they have to work at home. You know, a lot of parents don't wanna do that because they want their kids to be good at X, Y, and Z and working at home is kind of menial. The reason working around the house is, you know, cleaning, mowing the lawn or whatever, Kids need to belong to a community. They want to be needed. They want to fit there. They want to feel like they're contributing something to the family ecosystem. It's really important for their sense of self. The other thing that's very important, meals. Uh, You don't have to eat every night, but if you can, three meals a week are, are huge. It's a time when family's relaxing. They're enjoying themselves because they're eating. Who doesn't like to eat? It's a wonderful, uh, it's a wonderful atmosphere in which you can really talk to your kids and exchange ideas and kids can be heard because kids feel invisible a lot at home. They don't feel they're necessary. They sort of live very autonomously. They sit in the room and play games, but they need to connect in that family community. And the best two ways to do that really are have dinners together because it's enjoyable, no tough conversations and have them work around the house and let them know you need them in that structure, they 
fit. They belong there. Dr. Meeker, I'm calling you out. Um, <laughs> I'm calling you out. I was raised in an upper middle class family in central Florida with a father who worked an eight to five and a mother who stayed at home and raised two sons. And I hated mealtime. It was a battleground. My father was tired. My mother was tired. I was forced to eat my corned beef and hash and I would spit it to the dog or put it in cookbooks. I mean, it was a battleground. I -hmm. never enjoyed it. It was eat your food, eat your food, eat your food. Starving kids in China. I was insistent that would not be my life, right? Yeah. Now, fast forward 30 years, I have a you know, fairly strong income. My wife is privileged to be a stay-at-home full-time mom and house manager. We have three healthy kids. Dinner is a battle time. You know, Wentworth, put the pork on your fork and put the fork in your mouth. Smith, why are your feet on the table? Thatcher, sit up. Why is your lemonade spilled all over the chair? And I see myself and my dad and my mom and thinking, dinner is a battleground. And we're trying to teach them manners. We're trying to actually feed them food to offset the chips they had in the stock machine at lunch. And it's tough. And I think my version of it is more realistic than your version. Fix me. No. Here's what you're doing. You're trying to do too many things at once. One, you never have you food think? battles with kids. <laughs> never have food ba- battles with kids. If they eat, they eat. If they don't, they don't. In 35 years, I've never had a kid starve to death who wasn't anorexic. Doctor, if I don't feed them the pork, then they're gonna go find, you know, they're gonna go get a fruit snack, they're gonna go get some Pringles. I know, why are Pringles in our house? And because we're human. That's easier Mm -hmm. said than done. Oh, it is. Don't fill your house up with a bunch of junk. You know, have rules. Kids don't need to snack. You know, this whole snacking thing, and you gotta have food, you gotta keep your blood. You know, we're our kids are learning they can eat sort of constantly through the day, yeah. and they learn not to respect food. Yeah. So you sit down, and you have three meals, that's it. If you don't eat your meal, even if your kid is 12, I know it's hard. Keep the Doritos out, or keep the chips out, or keep the pop out, whatever. So that's the, that's the first thing. Don't worry about it so much. You know, if your kid goes and eats chips, they eat chips. But at the meals, serve them food that you think they're going to like, but you only serve one kind of food to everybody in the family. You don't, you're not a short order cook. You don't make them eat. There's certain things you don't talk about. And if you're really stressed at dinner time as a parent, eat together on Saturday night. You know, who isn't a little more relaxed on Saturday night? So you kind of make rules that you're things that you're not going to do at the dinner table. Because your parents are trying to get you to eat your nutrition and hurry up. You got stuff to do and work to do. Who would want to do that? So, um, but here's the other thing. If mealtime doesn't work for you, set aside one. This sounds goofy, but it can be kind of fun. We started doing this. One night a week, maybe Sunday night, whatever, Friday night. Everybody has family game time for an hour, hour and a half. Now your kids are gonna roll their eyes. This is the stupidest thing, but get a really fun game like code names or something and say, look, phone's off, we're gonna do it. And the first three three or four or five times you're gonna do it, your kid's gonna hate it. Once they get used to it, it's really fun. So the whole thing is find family time that can be fun and relaxing together. And if meal time doesn't work, that's okay. Fine, do something else. Let's talk about um, religion. Uh, Obviously a sensitive topic as organized religion becomes less and less part of daily family life around the world, whether that's, you know, a a Judeo-Christian religion or Islam or Taoism or something else. You you talk about the value of religion 
and, and having a sense of purpose, having a sense of meaning for your life. Uh, we're a public company. We don't care about people's religiosity or not. Uh, we hope people have healthy, strong lives. We want everyone to have a sense of purpose and mission in their life, whether it's religious or spiritual or not. Everyone has different beliefs, including you. But you write about it pretty prominently as one of the three pillars of raising strong children, recognizing we have an audience from around the world and nearly every country in the world where it's legal to listen to a podcast. Talk about the role you think spirituality, religion, and having a sense of purpose and meaning and and connecting to a creator plays in a kid's life. You know, a lot of kids today don't know why they exist. Um, I ask them. You know, what are you here for? What's your purpose? What do you want to do? Who loves you? How do you matter? Kids know, we all know intuitively there's something bigger than us. You know, there's a deeper meaning to life. There's something going on we can't see. And, you know, to me as a Christian, that is, that's God. I need to know, kids need to know that their value is deeper than what they can see and what we can see. And I think it's intuitive. And interestingly, little kids, younger kids under than 10, are much more open to talking about spiritual things and God and their beliefs than parents are because they haven't really been jaded. But even a young child knows there's more to me, there's more to life. Why am I here? Why do I exist? Am I important? Or am I just here to, you know, go to school and play soccer? This is a really important thing for kids. And and I will tell you that's a big part of depression in kids. Kids don't know why they're alive. If you connect them to something deeper, their spiritual life, God, um, they know that there's something deeper to them. They have help. If you know an alcoholic who's a recovering alcoholic, what's one of the first things they're going to tell you? I couldn't do it alone. I had help. It was from God or the being that I pray to. So we know we need help on a deeper level. And so that's why I talk about the spiritual realm and I talk about the character of God because we need more. We need help. We know there's something deeper. And this really satisfies kids, and I believe it's true. Can we end our conversation with this? What do you want parents to know about what's really happening with their kids? We live in different worlds. We think we know, we think we open backpacks and we check phones, that kind of stuff. What is really happening in our kids' lives that you need parents to be more tuned to? Yeah, well, first of all, parents need to lead. One of the things that I found in the past 10 years is parents are timid and they're afraid they're going to say the wrong thing, do the wrong thing, upset their kid, drive their kid away. Don't be afraid of that. Use your instincts, your leadership instincts, and don't be afraid to let your kids know how you feel and you think. That's how I feel and think as as a pediatrician. The most important thing parents can do, we really need to train ourselves, ask a simple question and shut up. Ask a simple question, look your kid in the eye and listen to what they say. We're terrible listeners. You know, we ask a question, they start to answer and we formulate our correction of their answer before they finish their answer. We're very, very fast at relationships. Slow down, look at your kids, get on their eye level um, and, and, and really let your kids know you want to hear what they have to say. Listen to what they have to say. 
you know, don't mandate, don't bully, but hear them out. We're reactionaries. We want to fix things, move things forward. It doesn't work that way in a family. So leadership means stating your position, but letting kids know you want to know what's going on in their world. You're not going to freak out, you know, but you're not going to back out. You're going to you're going to engage the battle with them and link arms with them because you are their number one ally. And that's what a good leader does. To our listeners and viewers, it is a compliment to have someone join this podcast, I think, now the world's largest weekly leadership podcast. It's another compliment to have their book on the wall. And I think the best compliment is when a book looks like this and it's dog-eared up because it's been on my nightstand in four separate homes. Dr. Meeker, you are the author of Parents Raising Children, Strong Mothers, Strong Sons, Boys Should Be Boys, Strong Fathers, Strong Daughters, and apparently six other titles that I do not have here today. Thank you for your time today. I appreciate the courage with which you tackled some tough topics. We all want our children to be happy, accepted, seen, felt, heard, and to be alive and to find meaning in their life. And I hope that everyone listening and watching today took something out that will make you a better parent, a better caregiver, perhaps even a better grandparent, and maybe even a better leader, not just in your house, but in your work, because a lot of these principles are the same whether we're leading people that are 10 or leading people that are 40. I thank you for joining us today with Franklin Covey's On Leadership. Thank you so much. And we'll see you back here next week for a new conversation on leadership. Mm -hmm.